I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket. I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that everything was stacked against me. Everything, like everything. This isn't supposed to happen this way. I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I know I had nothing to do with this. How is this possible? I grew up trusting the systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me. Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. This is Wrongful Conviction. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. And today we have a very special and unique episode of the show. Today we have Tim Tyler with us. Tim, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Uh, thank you. And Tim, uh, one of the reasons why I say it's unique is because Tim was actually convicted of a crime that he was guilty of, which was an LSD crime, nonviolent, and sentenced to double life in prison. No guns, no weapons, no violence, no, no nothing, actually. And when I tell you, when you learn the story, your head is going to explode. So stay tuned, get comfortable, because this is, this is really madness. So, Tim, let's turn this to you. Um, this case, I mean, you were in prison for 26 years, so this case happened a long time ago. Uh, yes, in 1992, August 3rd. 1992, and you were on the road with the Grateful Dead, right? Yeah, I was a deadhead going to, um, 
you know, like I love the Grateful Dead and the band, the families. It was like a big family that went around. And uh, it was a sense of freedom, it felt like. And I was following them around and um, I was arrested. I mailed some LSD to Florida and I was arrested and uh, I ended up doing uh, like, I, like you know, it's 26 years and 27 days. Right, and there's and so I'm lucky because um, President Obama ended up giving me a clemency. So without that or without support, I would still be in there, and I would just be like another number where I couldn't get a message out. And your case has so many horrible aspects to it, and for me, um, it's very personal because. Um, listeners of the show know that I'm the founding board member of the Innocence Project, but I actually joined the Board of Families Against Mandatory Minimums before I even knew about the Innocence Project. So I've been with FAM since almost since the beginning of the organization. Um, it's a wonderful organization, FAMM.org. It was founded by Julie Stewart. She was sort of my mentor uh, as I got started on this, you know, lifetime uh, in criminal justice reform. And um, you are uh, a person that we've spent a lot of time talking about. You are a rallying cry, I think, for people in this movement. You're someone who uh, all of us uh, respect so much, and, um, and you're someone who we're really proud to have played a part in helping to win your freedom. Um, but the, the lens that the government went to to convict you of this crime and sentence you to life in prison, which, again, life, and I've heard your sister talk about this on videos. There's a video of free Tim Tyler on the Internet people want to watch. It's so horrible because, it, 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 as we say at FAM, let the punishment fit the crime, right? But your punishment didn't match anything to do with the crime. Yours was a nonviolent crime. How did this happen, right? How could this have gone so wrong? And, and we know also that they ended up implicating your father in it, which is which is so disgusting that it actually just, and I think people need to know that part of the story. I'm sure it's tough to talk about it. But anyway, can you take us back to this? So you're on the road with the Grateful Dead. You get approached by a, who turned out to be a government informant, right? Um, actually, I had friends in Florida, in St. Pete, Florida, that I sold. You know, I wanted to do LSD, and I sold some to my friends wanted to do it, so I sold it to my friends. Well, one of them was arrested for, I believe, a sheet or an ounce of weed. I'm not sure which. And he told me he was arrested. He's like, I, I was arrested last night. And um, he, po he said he posted a bond. And, you know, and I told him, well, your first offense in Florida will probably give you uh, probation. But um, he was uh, recording me at that time. And then he recorded me like 26 audio tapes after that. And... Like, I sold him, like, a thousand hits of LSD, you know, and then I sold him three more times, another thousand, and all of those were recorded where they could have arrested me. And then I said, well, I was actually in Florida when I did these sales of, in person to him, and they could have arrested me, but they didn't arrest me. I told him, I said, I'm leaving Saturday to go on tour, you know, because there was no shows at this particular time. And um, they could have arrested me before I left, but they didn't. They let me go. So I went on to the shows. Actually, I went to uh, 
California first, and I bought um, like 12,500 hits of um, LSD. Now, it was like the price for that, what I paid was like $4,000. So you're talking about $4,000 of LSD total conspiracy. And I went and I sent, I, they wired me money, like $1,800 of their money, and I sent it all in an envelope, but I had sent envelopes that never, that never arrived, and I took the loss myself before, before this. So this particular envelope, I sent 9,000 um, hits in this envelope, and I put several different envelopes in it, and um, one was for a friend of mine, one was for somebody that, somebody else that just was, what a blank person. One was for 2,000 hits, which was for my father, but my father was, he didn't look at it like he was doing anything, it was like an envelope, you know, he never did LSD. So he was just getting some for a friend of his. So, um, but he knew it was coming, you know, I, but I sent it all in one big envelope with more, with envelopes inside it, and I sent it to this guy's business. Well, when it was delivered, the um, DEA or whoever, the officers, delivered it and at this guy's business, and he knew me since I was a kid, and my father knew him since he was a kid, and um, he basically uh, cooperated right on the spot. So he called my father and said, hey, come down here. So my father did, and he basically threw the envelope in my father's car, and then my, he convinced my father to walk around with him at um, their business, trying to get him to um, incriminate, I think that's the word, mm -hmm. himself. So my father said something, yeah, I'm just getting it. It's just an envelope I'm bringing to a friend. That's, that's all my father really said, and that's all he was really doing. So um, they arrested him. As soon as he said that, they came and arrested him. Right, They were there hidden, and they arrested him. My father, and I had a, a good friend of mine, they arrested him. There was only 500 hits was for him. He ended up doing five years himself. This guy and my father was ended up being sentenced to 10 years for this charge, and he, um, he had about a year and a half to go home, and he died in prison of a heart attack at the age of 53 in uh, April 17, 2001. So um, when, I, when I sent all this stuff, then I had warrants for sending that, you know. Right, now I, it's a federal crime because you sent it through the mail. Well, actually, I sent it UPS, so it wasn't a federal offense, but I was traveling the country, and they couldn't catch me, so I guess it was originally going to be a state crime, and my father was arrested and posted his bond as a state crime, but they wouldn't release him because they decided to let the federal takeover. So my, so eventually my father was able to get a bond. And when I was arrested, I had no bond, none, not a million, not 10 million, whatever, zero bond. And, um, I also knew that once I was arrested, that I was, I was going to go away for a long time this time. I, see, I had two prior sales of LSD. And when I went to court, they offered me 18 months in prison or three years probation. So I took the three years probation. I pled guilty, took three years probation. And then they took me to the other one and they um, actually wanted to give me three years in prison. And I told them, 
I was never even in their town, which they can verify, and I'd like to have a speedy trial and go to trial. I, and then um, several months later, I told them, I would be willing to plead guilty if you ran a concurrent probation with the one in, in Pinellas County, even, even though I was not the person that would drove up there. They arrested, it was a friend of mine that drove up there, and they arrested him, and he pled guilty in the whole nine yards. So after, it was like a week before we were going to go to trial, they said, okay, um, you can plead guilty today. Matter of fact, the judge was upset that I was going to plead guilty. It was a female judge, and she says, you can plead no contest, and I will give you adjudication of guilt withheld and give you three years probation concurrent to your other three years probation. So I pled no contest. Okay, so then within six months of that time, I ended up going to some shows again, and I was really only had a couple of guys. This guy uh, named Jeff Rhodes that I sold to on this charge that ended up setting me up. And I had like one or two other guys that I sold to. That was it. I mean, it was just my friends. It wasn't like this big, big thing. I wasn't this big person that they seemed like to make me out to be. But um, and and I want to just jump in here for a second because you know the the cynic out there would be listening and go, "Wow, this guy who's selling LSD and it's against the law and this and that, blah blah blah." You know, we have people, all kinds of people, that listen to the show, and they all have their own unique viewpoints on these these issues. But for those people, I would ask them to consider the fact that. There was a total of $4,000 involved, right? And we spent, as a country, to keep you locked up for 26 years, we spent probably close to a million and a half taxpayer dollars, not to mention the lost income that we might have gotten from your, you be, being out and getting a job and working, paying taxes, um, you know, not to mention your dad's 10 years in prison. I mean, the implications of this across the board are, it's, you know, I guess when you add it all up, it's probably more than a couple million bucks that we spent to lock up a guy who probably needed to go to rehab, which was you, you know? I mean, uh, I don't want to, I can't go back and judge you from back then, but, you know, uh, it sounds like you had a, you know, you had a drug issue and, um, at some point, you probably would have had to get some help for that. But I think that's my, my personal feeling is that that's how we should approach drugs. We should approach them as a medical problem, not a criminal justice problem. And they do that in certain parts of the world, like Portugal, and they have no issues whatsoever, right? That all drugs are legal there. Nobody cares. There's no, there's no increase in crime. There's no increase in, in uh, overdoses. There's no – every social scientist that has studied it has found that when they decriminalized it, which was in 2000 – um, all those things actually uh, were affected positively. The crime rate went down, uh, you know, drug use went down, overdoses went down, and it went down not only for, for small countries they compared it to, European countries, and world countries. Like, it's just, all the evidence shows that this is, a, is the, the only sane strategy is to treat drugs as a medical problem. Granted, if you get behind the wheel and you're high as a kite and you hurt somebody, then I believe then you have to be punished in some way, right? Or if you do anything to hurt somebody, and if you act in a way that's irresponsible to anyone other than yourself, then, you know, we have to, as a society, look at that. But for someone who is not harming anybody else, 
um, not, you know, selling it to little school children or doing anything, you know, don't get me started. Uh, but anyway, your experience is, a, is an extreme example of what's wrong with our sentencing laws and with our approach to drugs in general. And it is also an example of something that is such a strange dichotomy because here you were someone who was sort of a free spirit, music lover. I'm a music lover. I never liked the Grateful Dead personally. <laughs> I was a little more into the hard rock stuff, but whatever. And then you end up being put in, going from this sort of hippy-dippy lifestyle, you know, flower power, whatever, into literally some of the most harsh conditions that any human being can or ever would endure. And I want to talk about that because it's important for people to understand what's that, what that's like and the concept of putting nonviolent offenders like yourself into maximum security prisons, which is so wrong on so many levels. But before we get to that, Tim, so... There's another problem with your case that we find over and over again in wrongful conviction cases, which is the lack of adequate counsel. And your attorney actually sold you down the river in a very meaningful way. And can you talk about that? Because you, did you have a public defender? Uh, yeah, he was a public defender, but he was also a private attorney that the government hired. It, it's kind of a strange situation because my father hired a very good attorney in um, Florida, named uh, Frank Wasada, and as soon as we pled guilty, you know, I, I was going to plead guilty anyway. I, I knew I was going to be in prison until uh, at least 2012, which, because I happen to believe in some of the stuff that Jerry Garcia and um, Terrence McKenna had spoke about that date, so I knew I was going to be in prison until then at least anyways, but... Um, I saw, I listened to my father in some levels, in, in one level, and his attorney. And his attorney basically said we should plead guilty, and my father was looking at it through another another way, too. I wanted, I didn't want to go to trial because I actually believed LSD to be a sacrament, you know, which is something that it, it, I'm sure there's a lot of argument to go on both ways on that. But um, they did take ayahuasca to the Supreme Court in 2006 and recognized it as a sacrament to certain people, which is very similar. So I just... But so that's now considered a religious ceremony, right? Yeah, it's, re it's considered a religious ceremony. I so it's Ayahuasca, right? it's, it's spelled A-Y-A-H-U-A-S-C-A. And it's went to the Supreme Court and it's legal in this country as a sacrament. They use the same argument that the Native Americans use for peyote, and they took it, and the guy that owned Seagram's Bottle Company, uh, Jeff Bronfman, I think, I think his name is, he took it to the Supreme Court, and he won. So it's regulated, but they're doing a good job. They said they don't want this, the same thing that happened with LSD. They don't want it to happen with ayahuasca, so it's very controlled. You have to really go through a ceremony and prepare yourself for it, you know, but it's very similar, probably more potent, in, in experience than, than LSD, and it's legal. Right, what a strange dichotomy, right? I mean, to, and, and what a weird society we are when you look at the fact that alcohol causes, you know, tens of thousands of deaths every year, if not hundreds of thousands. I don't even know the numbers, but it's a lot. And it causes violence, and it causes people to misbehave in all sorts of ways, all of which are negative for society, and their own families, and their health, and everything else. And yet it's totally legal, right? 
And yet we have other drugs like marijuana, which are still, which is, you know, obviously we're making a lot of progress. And this is something I've been working on for a long time and advocating for. But, you know, it, there are still people serving life in prison in America for marijuana. Like, exactly what right. in the fuck is going on with that? I mean, people, I say that to people and they're like, huh? No, that doesn't make any sense. Yet we have more than 60% of Americans now live in a community where at least some form of medical or, or recreational marijuana is legal. And yet we have people who are serving life in prison and getting arrested every day. Tens of thousands of people every week, every month getting arrested for marijuana. It's nuts. Um, and it goes back to what you were talking about before. So, so you came from a place of believing that what you were doing really wasn't wrong because of the fact that you looked at this and, and granted, you know, okay, you know, people have, I'm sure, very differing opinions on that, but I, I can understand where you're coming from. But I want to fast forward a little bit to the, the trial itself, because didn't your attorney give you literally the worst advice that any attorney has ever given anybody, which was to plead guilty? Yeah, actually, he gave me worse advice than that. He wanted me to cooperate uh, go against my father and they would give me 10 years, you know? So that was his first conversation I ever had with him. And I'm like, I called my father as soon as I was done with that conversation. My father was, uh, had a bond and he was home. And I went and called him. I says, yeah, this is what this attorney just told me. You know, they, they offered me 10 years to go against you. And I'm like, of course, I'm just telling you, of course, I'm not going to do nothing like that. And, um, yeah, he gave he gave me that bad advice, and I was his last case that he was taking on as it for the government. He started a private practice after my case, so he, he's pretty conflicted. I mean, I mean, it's it's a sad story that the laws of this country are made to hand somebody a life sentence for this small amount. Well, maybe it's a large amount. It just all depends on the way you look at it. Well, if you look at it in terms of monetary value, it's a small amount. If you look at it in terms of the sheer numbers, it's a large amount. Um, but, you know, it's an amount that most people will never, ever see or come close to in their lifetimes. But at the same time, you know, again, I'm of the opinion that drugs should be regulated. They should be taxed, just like alcohol. And they shouldn't be sold to minors. And we should have safe spaces for people who are heroin addicts to, to you know, to do what they need to do and not be in the streets um, and, and, you know, it's been shown that these type of safe injection facilities reduce the spread of AIDS and hepatitis drastically, clean needle exchanges, things like that. Um, I don't do drugs. I, I wish, you know, I could wave a magic wand and, and help every drug addict get off of drugs that, that, you know, that they could. I believe we should have rehab facilities available to every American who needs it and wants it, um, like a hospital is. Um, and we would be a much better society if that were the case. But instead... We lock people like you up for crazy amounts of time. Um, but in your case, your attorney told you that you could plead guilty. First of all, the idea that he wanted you to testify against your father is something I really have to just process for a little while. I guess he had to offer you that option if it was an option that was available to you. You know, he probably had a, a, a legal duty to tell you about it. He didn't have to advise you to do it. But I'm sure he did have some sort of a, a, a responsibility to tell you that that was on the table. Um, you did the only right thing that you could do, of course, and that's a, the only honorable thing. And then, but then he still told you that if you pleaded guilty, you would get what? Not life. Tw- uh, twenty-one to twenty-seven years, I thought. So, which is a long time. We, you know, when you're just getting arrested and you're coming in, 
but I, I also, I just had to adapt to my environment and, and think about, okay, I'm going to be in prison for a long time, so regardless. And I really thought about December 21, 2012. I had it on the back of my mind. Um, I believed something was going to happen and maybe I would, that date would change, you know, um, like Jerry mentioned or Terrence McKenna, an author, he mentioned uh, like a global shift of consciousness on that date. So I figured, okay, I'm going to be in until then anyway. So it doesn't matter if they say 20 years, two life sentences, 30 years. It just didn't matter to me at the time. I, I, I just accepted my fate, you know, like I had a couple of friends also, and I called them up and I said, um, you're never going to hear from me again. I'm, if anybody ever comes to you, asks you any questions or anything, just tell them you'll cooperate against me. That's what I told some of the people because I know I was basically the, taking it. I was going to jail, you know. I was doing the, a right, long so time. So you were trying to send a lifeline out to some of your friends that might have gotten in trouble. That's actually, I've never heard that story before. That's a very... Uh, it's extre- I mean, thoughtful is not the right word. It's not a strong enough word for it, but it's a, it's a very grace, graceful thing that you did. Um, and uh, I, 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 I tip my hat to you for that. So your attorney uh, told you if you pleaded guilty, this is what you would get. You were operating under this um, mistaken assumption that this prophecy was real and that, you would, that, that some magical thing was going to happen on, uh, on that particular date in 2012. Um, obviously, that's not how it worked out. So when you, when you were sentenced... Um, what, I mean, that, that moment, I guess... Uh, it didn't really hit me when I was sentenced, when he actually said, uh, you know, I'm, I sentenced you to life and then another life. It didn't really hit me. My sister was in the courtroom, though, and the officers involved were in the courtroom. And as I was walking out of the courtroom, you know, I was... It was... It didn't hit me until I looked at my sister. And the two guys, they were um, officers, they stood up and high-fived each other in the middle of the courtroom and my sister saw that and I'm looking at my sister and I basically start I broke down right then I was like man this is sad sad for my sister my it's sad to see my sister here right now like that and um I walked in you know with the marshals into the elevator yeah I, I had some tears going because of seeing my sister it was more to do with her than it was for myself you know I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today I'm give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. 
I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. That's a, that's a, that's a crazy uh, thing, but we've heard that before on the show with people at this moment of, of utter despair still thinking more about the people they love than about their own uh, predicament, which is sort of an, it's a really an interesting uh, um, phenomenon, psychological and emotional phenomenon that happens. But, but then, you know, then comes another terrible aspect of your case, which is something that I know you talk about in your speeches and I know you want to talk about today, um, and I want to talk about today, which is the fact that you were sent to some of the most dangerous prisons in America as a nonviolent hippie, right? You still look like a hippie. You got, you know, you can't hear, you can't see him on the radio, but he's got long hair in a braid and, uh, you know, just sort of has the mannerisms of somebody who is a, just a gentle, uh, musical sort of a soul, um, which I recognize from my day job in the music business. Um, so how did you deal with this? I mean, what was it like when you first went and how did you manage to survive? I mean, these are places where people are getting stabbed, People are getting beaten. People are getting killed, right? And here you are, not a, not, I mean, you're not a small guy, but you're not a big bodybuilder type of guy, tough guy, whatever. You didn't grow up in a violent, you know, back, well, with a background. Like. It started off, um, I guess it just depends on who you befriend when you first go into prison, you know. I went, there was a guy from, actually from Hell's Kitchen in New York uh, named Paulie Chartier. Uh, he passed away since then, but he took me as a roommate um, right off, you know, right off the bus, basically, you know, and I came in there with long hair. So he's like, look, you got to shut your, you got to cut your hair first. And um, he, he schooled me, but he did more than school me. He had, without me realizing the amount of stuff that he did for me, he had like power within the prison system, let's say, you know, if you're a... Um, serious violent person or whatever and you've done some serious violent acts then you gain some kind of uh power more more like people are afraid of you i guess it it boils down to and he took me in as a roommate and he schooled me and he also had explained to other people where i came from you know i'm i'm this deadhead i'm i'm a you know he's like yeah you're you know he used to used to be funny to him in a way as far as seeing me because I'm like this non... He's like, you don't belong in here in this prison system. And he personally told people that other people that had power like to look out for me, you know, to to like make sure that I don't get in anything. I wasn't... I didn't do drugs in there. I didn't do... Uh, I didn't borrow things from people and not return them there's a lot of things they say when you get to prison not to do uh gamble um and um well uh, tim why do you think that he took such an interest in your well-being because it sounds like he at least for a period of time saved may have saved your life well he wasn't the first person i mean he was the first person but he wasn't the last um an italian guy that's very well known from uh new york also and he's He's, um, he took a liking to me too. And I started playing tennis with him 
and uh, three days a week. And tennis, it, tennis in a maximum security prison. They did in Atlanta. It, it took a few years, but um, they had tennis in USP Atlanta when I when I arrived there. You know, they actually had tennis courts in there. Uh, no longer, they have no more tennis in any of the prisons, but they had it there and handball. And one of the things I started doing was playing handball. And um, these guys, you know, had a lot of power on the street in the free world. So in prison, they, some of them retained some of that power where nobody would mess with them or maybe their friends. So they, by me playing daily, doing exercise with some people that had, it was, that had a little power in the free world, let's say, or even in prison, some of the other people would think, well, they better not, you know, approach me in negative ways based on only because I befriended some people. And not everybody is able to befriend, you know, some people like that. It's just like they kind of like came to me. It's, I don't really know how it all happened. It was more like they, they saw somebody, they saw somebody they didn't feel like that was a real, that was like a, um, I don't know, I like to say the word convict, but in some levels, like a uh, criminal. They didn't look at, at me as like a criminal, and they looked at me like, and I had a life sentence, so they're, they, they had some compassion for me, I guess. You right, know? It's, it sounds like it, it uh, upset their own sense of right and wrong. Uh, to an extent that they felt that they could use that um, influence, power, you know, they had in that situation to be able to um, protect you. And, and, and that's a sort of a little miracle, right? It's sort of hope in a hopeless place, I suppose. But you were transferred to, I mean, you were in a dozen different prisons over the time you were uh, yeah. locked up. And so, you know, you couldn't have had a dozen different uh, protectors, right? And, and, and even then, like for you, I know that from having read about you, um, at various times you were the, the winemaker or whatever in the prison, and that managed to help you because uh, you're making a prison hooch or whatever uh, to, to keep you in the good graces of some of the other guys who might have uh, uh, you know, been predators um, or tormentors of yours. Um, and that, that does lead to a good point that I want to make, which is that my friend Tony Papa, um, who was in uh, prison, maximum security prison in New York for 12 years for a nonviolent first offense, um, he talks a lot about how, you know, there was, so much, there was so much drugs in the prisons that he was in. There were so many drugs. And as he says, if you can't control the, f the flow of drugs in a maximum security prison, how can you expect to control it in a free society? And I think that really says a lot about the work that we do because... Just think about that, right? There's, I don't think there's, I mean, for every, everybody I've spoken to, and there's, you know, hundreds of people by now that I know who have served time in different prisons around, and nobody says that it was hard to get access to drugs, which I find remarkable, but it's true. And yet we labor under this assumption that if we devote enough resources to trying to stop the flow of drugs or trying to, you know, uh, uh, legislate our way out of it or incarcerate our way out of it, that somehow or other it's going to reduce the, the amount of drugs in society. No, it's never worked. It never will work. It never can work. So, and your, your experience is just another example of that. But back to your experience. So, 
So you went from prison to prison. You were placed in solitary confinement at various times for either things that you did or did not do, right? And and how did, I mean, you were deprived of basically all, almost all of the things that a human being needs to survive, aside from the fact that, I mean, were you, you were vegetarian the whole time you were in there too? Yeah. I mean, yeah, how, that's so, nearly impossible to do, but yes. It's, it's, um, I starved at times, literally. Um, that's something that I'd like to bring awareness to. Like, there is some other vegetarians in there, vegans in there. There, there actually are a few, like, a lot of Rastafarians are vegans, and they have very limited, uh, food choices in there, you know. Um, um, towards the last couple years I was in there, they started, letting people get like tofu and uh garbanzo beans and stuff like that that are vegan that are vegetarians um but for the most part for the m- most of those years they serve like soy just soy you know throw some water and some soy and that would be food you know but for me i was fortunate where i was i, I ate um oatmeal and apples mostly every single day for lunch that was my lunch you know i would eat that in my room because you can buy oatmeal in the commissary and um, apples. Sometimes you can get them from the kitchen, you know, or you can have somebody bring them to you, I guess. Um, and I would just go out and play handball for a lot of years, for like the past 20 years probably. I would skip going to the real lunch because there's mostly nothing there that I would eat. Um, but, it, yeah, I and then in the commissary, they, they have a commissaries where – Inmates can buy food, but there's nothing organic, definitely nothing organic in there. But there's very little that's even healthy. You know, like they might sell uh, bags of beans, but even those contain like canola oil and other stuff that I don't, that I know that's unhealthy for you. So, it, like I said, it's very, very difficult to eat the way I did. But I, I've been a vegan for a long time, mostly for, um, cause I karma like i don't like to promote death even of animals you know like and so you know that's just my choice and it was a hard choice but luckily i was given another chance and when i come out to the free world here i cannot believe they have vegan restaurants now everywhere they have it's amazing they have vegan they have whole foods with vegan food vegan salad bars i mean I'm, organic food everywhere it's unbelievable i'm telling you i eat all that stuff now i eat the beyond burgers i eat that they, they have these things called fruffalo wings that's my addiction now is, ca- is it cauliflower i think it's made out of cauliflower it's got a bunch of different yeah. stuff in it but none of it's meat and uh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be opening uh a, a vegan uh restaurant eventually and i'm very excited about that too i mean i'm not i'm i'm tr- i'm almost there but i'm not quite there i still slip once in a while with a little bit of fish or something but i'm on the same page as you i don't want to hurt animals or um or anything like that so um you know I, i'm getting there you know but i have a lot of respect for people like you that have been able to do it for so long and the fact that you were able to do it under those conditions is insane but i'm not perfect um but i'm I'm trying to minimize, you know, my impact on, on, the, on the animals and the oceans and the rest of it. So, um, so I look up to you for that. But how did, I mean, the, you know, going back to what I was saying before, Tim, you know, the, the deprivation to someone like you who was really, you were as addict, more addicted to music than drugs, right? I mean, and you weren't able to have that experience in prison except on a very limited basis at certain times. 
Um, you obviously are someone who is a, um, you know, a, a kind and gentle and loving person. And here it is, everything's the opposite, right? You're not able to have appropriate forms of physical contact with, um, with, with and by that I mean whether hugs or, you know, uh, uh, romantic relationships. Um, you're not able to have any of the things that sustained you and sustain you now on the outside. How does a person like you go into an environment like that and with, with actually no prospects of ever getting out and maintain sanity, hope, uh, any of it? Like what, what, you know, you're in this, like the darkest hole that even in solitary confinement, like how'd you do that? Well, the first time I went in the hole in solitary, they call it solitary confinement is known as the hole in prison. You know, when you're in prison, they say it's the hole. Uh, the first time I went in there, I was in there for 37 days. I, I didn't do anything wrong, but um, there's there's different reasons why you would go to the hole. They call it special housing unit. It's called a shoe. Um, there's different reasons why, like, at this particular time, there was a, a guy that was in the same living quarters that I lived at, and he actually put a knife in not only our room, but, like, four other people's rooms because... He didn't like my roommate, and he didn't like, you know, in the 90s. And um, so they locked, if, if, you, if they find something in your room and nobody says it's theirs, my roommate would have said it was his if it was his. And if I have something that's wrong that I shouldn't have, I will say it's mine too. So it wasn't either one of ours. And they, so they took us to the hole. I was there for 37 days. Um, and then they let me out. And then uh, another time I went for over two months because somebody else was trying to leave that prison. So he used my name to say that I was like extorting him for to make wine or something. You know, it was extorting. I don't I would never extort anybody for anything. You know, and I'm thinking, wow. And they shipped the guy. They, I was in a hole for two months and two days. And it's just a, a coincidence that. Um, it was around August 9th of 1995. This was right when Jerry Garcia died. I was in a hole when he died. And they used to never play music, you know, on, you could maybe hear one of their songs every so often on the music. But when he died, they started playing all day. For the whole day, I was able to listen, you know, I'm listening to music. On the radio. On the radio, you know, and that started the Grateful Dead Hour. And they started to have one hour a week, you know, where I can listen to it where... That helped me, really helped me. But um, at times when I could not listen to it, I actually used to use the telephone and call my sister, and she would play me this song called "Days Between." It's a Grateful Dead song over the phone, and I would, it would help me. It would like, oh, it would help me. Like maybe someday, somehow, somebody will help me, and I can go back to a show or I can be able to listen to them on my own, whatever the case may be. Um. So I, I was, like I said, I was in the hole for two months and two days over um, somebody saying that I was something to do with wine, but they shipped that guy. He wanted to get shipped, and they, they did. They shipped him. They let me back out. And then I, I was there for seven years, and at the very end, um, they tried to say I was, they didn't know for sure, but they were saying just in case they're going to put me in the hole because they thought I was friends with these guys that were trying to escape. I would never try to leave because it's there's no sense of trying to leave because you're you can't stay away. It's like 
it's weird. I would never try to try to go anywhere, but um, I had a friend of mine that was actually trying to leave, and he had some friends, and they all they were trying, and and they locked them all up. And then a month later, they came and said, "Well, we're locking you up just in case." And they locked me up, and I was in over five months, over five months. Because your friends were trying to escape. Because I had one friend that was, or whatever. They just thought that just in case they're locking me up, just in case. So they. They locked you up. Back then, they can ship you if they had a good enough reason. So they, they just said, "All right, you've been here long enough. We're sending you somewhere else." So they sent me to USP Beaumont, which is um, another one of the most serious prisons in the country. Still is. Well, now it's really limited control in there. Like there's um, fences everywhere inside there. You're never t- together with the whole prison at one time. So it's very, it's still violent. Even even with that, I have a friend of mine there actually, um, named uh, Ronald Adcox, that um, was arrested in 1980, and he had a release date in 1987, and a guy came to him and heard that he was gay on the street, or and he got arrested at 17 years old in 1980, 17 years old. This guy came and slapped him and said, shave, you're going to be my girl, basically in prison. So he basically killed the guy. You know, you, I would have thought he could have used self-defense, but there's people in prison that will go to court or trial against you. There's some people that will. Like if somebody gets hurt, there's somebody else in, in a whole other unit that didn't see anything, but they'll be willing to testify that they saw everything. And apparently he had enough people that went against him and they gave him a life sentence. And since then, he ended up killing two more people. There's different reasons why that would happen. But if somebody tried you in that manner, um, you know, he, he did what he did. And so he has three life sentences now. And he he's about 6'4", you know, he was a serious person. And I ended up befriending him in uh, around 2006. And since then, we've been friends. You know, I've been, we've been friends ever since then. I actually still talk to him. He's, he's, I mean, his story is interesting because he was arrested at 17 years old. He's never been to, seen a beach in his life. And I'm like, if there's anything I can do ever to help him out, you know, I will. And I have been, you know, can do whatever I can do for him. And I, and I want to talk about that too, Tim, because before we get to it, though, um, your nightmare came to a very dramatic end, and that's an important thing for us to talk about. Um, I have been, for uh, as long as I've been in this movement, um, a, an advocate for clemency in cases like yours, um, in mandatory sentencing cases, in cases of actual innocence. Ironically, paradoxically, those are harder to get clemency on typically because governors and presidents will often prefer to let the courts deal with those actual innocence claims. It's sort of understandable, but it's easier for them to look at a case like yours or so many other mandatory sentencing cases I've been involved with where it's so obviously an affront to justice that someone is serving a sentence that is so wildly mismatched with the crime that they're convicted of. 
even if they are guilty. And certainly there's a lot of people serving mandatory sentences for crimes they didn't do. But um, in cases where someone like you actually pleads guilty, or even Lenny Singleton, who I, you know, was so thrilled to walk out of prison and we've become friends since in, in uh, several months ago in Virginia, um, you know, who was serving double life for stealing $500 in a handful of dash and grab robberies in which no weapon was used and no one was hurt. He's another one who pleaded guilty and uh, just judge was in a bad mood that day, you know. So, but in your case, the system, it took too long Justice delayed, but justice wasn't denied because ultimately there were a lot of people who came to your, you know, I guess in a certain way your prayers were answered, right? Because you had a literally an army of people, 400,000 of them <laughs> signed petitions. I was one of them um, asking the president. Uh, yeah, sure. Asking I'm one of 400,000. Um, it's a good it's a good army to be a part of. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. So there was an army of people, advocates, lawyers, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Again, that's famm.org. Hopefully people will go and visit the website. Um, who were literally begging for your freedom. And, uh, and those cries were heard. And you were granted clemency. But um, I want to hear from your perspective what that moment was like. And how did you find out? Were you expecting it? Because this is the flip side, right? We know what the misery was of that, that moment in the courtroom where they were, you know, the high-fiving and, the, and your sister. And the, now this was really the opposite, right? So can you explain that scenario? Um, yeah, they were handing out um, clemencies every, every, I don't think there was a set time. They, this is 2016. Yes. President Obama. President Obama was um, granting clemencies 
you know, some, I think he started like 45 and then he and then it got to be like 100, I think, at one time or 111, I think, and the time that he gave that I was granted it. Um, so for me, I was every time they, they were to have a group of clemencies, you know, you want to be the first to see if your name's on or, you know, because we didn't know how they would tell you if you were going to have one. So I would go and see my, nope, my name's not on that one. My name's not on it. So one day I'm sitting in my room. Uh, I think I just came in from recreation. I'm not sure, but it was at, um, it was like at 1.40 in the afternoon. And normally when you're in prison, you can only move for 10 minute moves. Like it's like on the um, hour, I believe it is. Some places on the hour, some on a half hour. So if it's not on the right time, you're not, they're not going to open the door and you're not going to go anywhere. You're going to have to wait until the next move, you know. And uh, the next move is either at 2 or 2.30. So they come to my door at 1.40. They says, you need to go out right now and go to R&D. Um, he didn't tell me why or anything. So I said, all right. I um, walked out there. He opened a door, which is not normal. So, and then in the center of the prison, there's a, um, it's called a hut, where there's a guard standing under there usually. So I walk, and he doesn't ask me where I'm going or nothing, so he, apparently he's in on whatever this is too. So he didn't say nothing to me. I said, okay, I walk, go to R&D, and they put me in this room. Um, and, they, you know, they lock the door, and you're in this room in R&D. So I'm, I don't really know exactly what's R&D? what it is. Wait, what's R&D? R&D is um, receiving and, um, oh, receiving and discharge, my bad. So they um, called me in there. So I'm sitting there for a few minutes, and then they called two other guys that worked at this place in, they have uh, called Unicor. It's um, basically a, a factory in prison. Um, that's another whole story that's interesting because it's, it's more like the more people you lock up that are nonviolent offenders, they can work in these prisons. Like, let's say you take a small-time dealer and put him in prison. Well, he doesn't have an income, so for him to get by, he, he might go work for an average 69 cents an hour in a factory they call Unicor. Anyways, so these two guys were working in there, and they came uh, in the same room as me. So all three of us in there, I said, hey, can I ask you guys a question? Are you guys... Uh, did you happen to put in clemency petitions? And both of them said, yes. I said, oh, my God, this might be a clemency. So they called one of them first, and they called him into this room. He went to an office, and he came back by us and gave a thumbs up like he just got a clemency. And I'm like, this cannot be happening. No way. I, can't, I cannot believe this. And um, they called me next, and I went in there, and... Uh, it was there was an, a female AW there, assistant warden, and she says, oh, "I need to put you on this phone, on a speakerphone." So she puts, so she hits it, and then Professor Ogilvy at Catholic University gets on the phone. He says, "Mr. Tyler," he says, "we have some good news from you from the pardon attorney. Um, President Obama has granted you a clemency." And I was, I, I couldn't believe, I couldn't. Uh, Almost just came back through me again right now. I couldn't, uh, I, I started, uh, like I wanted to tear up. I said, I'm trying to hold it together right now. I said, this is, this is unreal. And did, it, did you believe it? Yeah, I, I mean, I believed it because it's his voice and he's talking to me, but I couldn't, 
I couldn't really believe it. It was like a dream. And, and even the woman, which she was looking at me like she wanted to hug me, you know, which, which is improper. And I, I didn't cross that line, but it was like, she, it was genuine, a great feeling of energy that she was sharing towards me at that time. And I just, I was like, wow, I'm trying to hold it together. Well, he gave me a and then he went into the details where I was given a two-year date which, with the enrollment in um, RDAP. Um, a two-year date? What does that mean, a two-year date? A two-year release date. You so know? you had to serve another two years? Yeah. He gave me, they gave me a clemency. It was August 30th, 2016. And he gave me a release date. So a two-year date, which with the enrollment in RDAP, which is a residential drug and alcohol program, so I ended up going into that program. Um, but I lived all the way up until that time without a release date. You know, I never, I didn't have a release date. I, I was doing life. So a lot of people coming into prison, they have release dates. Like they're going to go home someday. They know on this date and this time, if they can right. not hurt somebody, they're going to go home. Or, or if they can, you know, stay out of, Trouble. Mischief, trouble, they'll go home. Well, I never had that understanding or comprehension before. So he gave me a two-year date. I went back in my room. I couldn't believe it. Actually, I went back in and I tried to call my sister, and uh, she didn't answer the phone. So I called my mother, and I caught my mom on the phone, and I was like, Mom, uh, you ain't going to believe this, but I, I just got a clemency. And my mother was... At first, she's like, what? And, and then all of a sudden, she, I felt like all this um, nervous, negative energy, negative um, depression that she's had for all these years. I, can, I felt it like come out of her, and she realized, oh, my God, I, I'm going to come home. I'm not, I'm not going to die in prison. I'm going to make it home. And um, it was just this feeling that I, can, I can't even put it down the way it really was. So I ended that conversation with my mom and changed her whole life. Because um, yeah, look at what she went through, right? Losing you and your dad at the same time um, for, I mean, yeah, I'm just. For many years, my mother had says, I didn't raise you to do all your life in prison. I didn't raise you for that. I believed there's something more for you to be doing here than serving all your life in prison. Well, she was right, as it turns out. And um, so a few several hours later, I called my sister. And when I called her, I know she already had heard the news because at a certain time, whenever they give out clemency to people, it goes all over the Internet and of who's going to get it and all that. So... Um, I couldn't catch her until like 8 p.m. that night on the East Coast time, which is 5 her time. And when uh, she answered her phone, I said, Carrie, I got the clemency in this. But she didn't have that genuine feeling of knowing it that I just told it to her. So I knew. But she did have, I think it was NBC at her house, uh, or uh, Las Vegas NBC, was at her house actually recording when I called her. Right. So I told her the story about my mom that I just revealed to you. And uh, they actually played that thing over the internet or over the NBC, that news, when I was telling a story about my mom because 
when I called my sister, she already knew. So, so they they recorded that all that. So that was interesting. Um, and the, and what was the reaction of the other guys in prison? Because word must have spread. Were they were they angry? Were they bitter? Were they uh, resentful? No, were they, happy? they were actually happy. When I went back into the unit and I told a couple of guys, and then they all saw it later on the everybody gets these downloads from the internet. We actually have internet in, in uh, federal prison since, um, not the internet, but email. Right. You know, you go to corelinks.com and you can email somebody that's in federal prison. And um, there's actually Can Do Clemency Foundation that was mentioned in earlier with Amy. Mm-hmm. And there's and her East Coast affiliate is um, this guy named Malik King. And he's in Atlanta. And he actually writes like four over 400 people that are in prison daily and he calls it lighting up our blue there's a blue light you know when we get when you have a message like you can walk by these computers in prison there's like five of them in in your unit where you live usually and if you go by and you type in your number it'll show it'll be a blue light if you have messages from the free world so he would actually send messages and he still does to over 400 people every single day and I was one of them. And so he would actually send us who, who got the clemencies, what they were charged for, their release dates, the whole nine yards. So um, I, see, I saw my name there that day, you know, that night. There's my name, and everybody could see that. But when I walked into the unit, I couldn't help. I was like, oh, my God, I just I got a clemency just now. And everybody was so happy. Oh, I'm so happy. Oh, man. It wasn't like they hate they weren't hating on anybody anybody that got they were so happy you know that's that's good to hear um and by the way i'm glad you mentioned that because i do get asked by people and i encourage people to write to people who are on the inside and this sounds like a good time to talk about that because the what's the name of the foundation it's can do foundation yeah can do clemency or it's it could be just can do foundation is that c-a-n capital c-a-n-d-o you know, can, can do foundations. So I want to put in a plug for them because if you go to their site, they'll, they can give you some instructions as to how to uh, how to reach out and, and, you know, make somebody's day a little brighter on the inside. Because I know from the people that I'm in, con- in communication with, it does make a big difference to know that someone, you know, th- th- there are people out there that, that care about you and and are fighting for you. Um, and I'm hearing it, of course, from you now in such a powerful way. Um, so. Okay, so it's, and for anyone listening, please go to CanDoClemency.com. It's C-A-N-D-O Clemency, which is C-L-E-M-E-N-C-Y.com. So it's CanDoClemency.com, and get involved and, you know, correspond with someone, and you'll be amazed how much of a difference you can really make with a very simple act like sending an email, as Tim is so eloquently explaining right now. So... Um, so that's, that's quite a, a dramatic turn of events. Um, I, you know, I hope that we're going to see many, many more clemencies, gubernatorial and presidential. Um, we're going to, I'm looking forward to working with can do, uh, on some of these because I've been blabbing about this issue for so long that people that know me are tired of hearing me talk about it. I think clemencies are an absolute responsibility of people in power that's why they're given those those powers is so that they can right wrongs because the justice system whoever created the clemency um uh you know protocol uh was obviously 
very aware that the criminal justice system is, is not, cannot be, and never will be perfect, and there are mistakes that are made, and the person who is holding the high exec, highest executive office in the state or the country has a, uh, an opportunity and responsibility to correct those injustices, and that's why they have that power. Unfortunately, it hasn't been used nearly as much as it should. Uh, President Obama certainly went farther than other presidents have uh, in modern times, but not nearly far enough, in my view. I think there are just too many thousands and thousands of people in the federal system, and of course, hundreds of thousands in the state systems that belong uh, uh, on the outside, that deserve clemency, that, that can be productive members of society as you are now. And, and that's, you know, with the limited time we have left, Tim, um, you know, I want to ask you about that because we were speaking earlier about some of the people you left behind. And if there were, you know, you know, a couple, two or three, uh, you know, people that really stick in your heart that, um, that you want to bring attention to their cases, this would be a good time to do it because you never know who's listening. Someone might be listening that can make a difference. Yeah, there's one person off, off the top of my head that I can think of. His name is Frank Merrill. And he, you know, he was uh, in like a reverse thing. Like the government was going to sell him some cocaine, which was, it was going to be a, quite a bit of it. But he, and he had access to money at the time and he paid for it and they he has no zero priors and they gave him a life sentence um this is 20 some odd years ago he's been down 20 some odd years i just left him in uh jessup georgia right so he was convicted of a hypothetical crime right because no drugs involved i mean the government was actually selling reverse sting into him trying to sell him cocaine which i think was 50 kilos right a lot it was a lot. Right, and it was, inten- it was his intention. He thought he was doing a real deal, but it wasn't even a real deal. Right. I and mean, obviously then they... Fictitious drugs, and Ugh. there's nothing produced. He had people that went to trial against him, but there's no evidence. There's no drugs anywhere. So, and, and he's not... He's just somebody that I personally know. There's other ones inside prison that have similar stories. You know, what they call it ghost drugs or stuff like that, where they didn't produce any drugs. There's no drugs actually involved. Um, but that's the most, uh, that's probably the worst case I've, I've ran across that I personally knew, you know, I've played, um, music with him in there a couple of times and, um, you know, that's somebody that I could bring awareness to. I had some other friends that were doing life for, uh, marijuana, like Billy Deco, but he ended up getting a clemency. Luckily I knew, I knew him for. The whole for 25 years probably in prison and he got a clemency in 2000 i think 15 before me you know but he was in there for marijuana and he had life and and he was into like sprouting food like i'm you know into health like i was he was into like sprouting beans and stuff he even tried to do some of that in prison which is nearly impossible i actually did some in prison like that which is nearly impossible to do Tim, your story is a, a remarkable uh, testament to the human spirit. Um, the fact that you were able to, uh, you know, to hang on uh, as you did and, and to, to, you know, maintain hope and maintain your vegan and, and your, your just sort of gentle and kind spirit and, and throughout this over a quarter century um, nightmare. 
And so, you know, I'm obviously thrilled that you're here. I hope people will hear your words and want to get involved. Um, if you do, the most direct way to do that is by going to FAMM.org. That's Families Against Mandatory Minimum. So it's F-A-M-M, like Mary Mary.org. And, uh, and, and learn, and, and, uh, and go ahead, Tim, what did you say? Uh, I just wanted to say something about fam, because uh, Julie Stewart, she had a brother, uh, she started fam 20 some odd years ago, because she had a brother that was, I think, doing five years, or could have been more than that, for marijuana. And for growing right, it in his own home, yep. Right it it wasn't she, even a large quantity, yeah. Yeah, exactly, and, she, and he had a minimum mandatory, I think it was five years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she heard of my case probably 20, 20 plus years ago also. And for all this time, whenever there's somewhere to talk about, she would talk about me. So, you know, I feel like I'm indebted to her. And in some respects, I went to visit her. And, you know, I have a lot of thankfulness to go to her, you know, specifically because she introduced me to Catholic University. I ended up doing my clemency petition and she has introduced me to many people throughout the years, you know, that brought a light to my case. And I'm actually very lucky to be free right now. And, and that's a, a big tribute to her, you know. It, a big, much of that is attributed to her because without her and many other people, of course, um, and all the people that signed a petition at change.org, Without all those people and her and, and never mind President Obama, I wouldn't even be able to be here right now to speak to maybe help somebody else in the future. So I appreciate that. So, Julia, I know you're listening, and um, I'm going to thank you from, from my uh, bottom of my heart, too, for getting me involved in this fight and for mentoring me and so many other people and for really starting a movement that is gaining momentum every day. Um, and which we're not going to stop until, you know, everyone who is, uh, who is in prison that shouldn't be is out. And that's a huge, huge task. But there's a lot of really good people working on this now, more than ever. And, and the momentum is there. So uh, a change is definitely in the air. So, Tim, this is the part of the show that I like the best um, because as we get towards the end, I get the opportunity, since it's my show, to do what I want. And what I want to do at the end of each show is to stop talking and listen. And so um, uh, before, we, before I turn the microphone over to you for final thoughts, I just want to thank you for coming in here, taking your time, doing all the advocacy work that you're doing, inspiring other people, including me and sharing your story with us and our listeners. So, um, Tim, uh, the mic is yours. Please feel free to talk about whatever's on your mind for the last few minutes that we have. Well, um, I'm sitting here in uh, New York City which in, a, in the free world, which is um, every single day, I, like I wake up and I still have this comprehension where I can't even believe that um, I am free, you know, and I, I'm thankful every single day that I am free, that I'm, I'm able to have something organic to eat or something vegan to eat. That's, you know, this, this life has changed. Uh, technology has changed. I do also feel at times that I just came out of a, um, 
like I was thrown in the future somehow. You know, as soon as I walked like past that gate, you know, I had to go through all these gates and give your name and all this stuff. And as soon as I walked past that gate, I just broke down. I could not believe it. Like the sunshine, looking at the sun, it looks so different from walking when I walk through that gate than it does inside them gates. The sun was like real again. And um, when I walked out of there, you know, we recorded walking out of there. And I have this friend of mine named Wes Brewer. Well, Wes Brewer decided to come. He's like a Grateful Dead fan or a Fish fan or, you know, similar fans, Jambian music fan. And he decided to come and take a bus with me. I was released from Jessup, Georgia. And I elected to take a bus ride all the way to Las Vegas because it gave me three days out of freedom before I had to go to the halfway house. Right. And if you would have went on an airplane, then you would only have like eight hours of freedom. So I was like, I'll, I'd rather see the country on a bus. And um, Wes decided to come, not only come, but to um, video record me the whole way and interview me, you know, and ask me different, you know, coming right out of prison. So one of the things that he did do was he surprised me with a trip to the beach and recorded me. And as soon as I just touched the sand, I just broke down, like broke down. And he recorded all this and recorded me going into this water. And I mean, I broke down, literally broke down. And um, like baptized in freedom. It was unreal. I just it was just I. Tears of joy, massive, massive tears of joy, really. So, um, yeah, I, I would like to thank everybody that has signed a petition for me or has supported me in any, any way, um, and thank my sister, too, who has spent many years um, not giving up. I guess that's, that'll probably do it. Well, well, once again, thank you for coming. Everyone, please go to famm.org. Go to candoclemency.org. And let's uh, let's not stop until we get every Tim Tyler that there is out of prison. Uh, thank you, Jason. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.